morning. I'll take your Bibles this morning and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Happy Father's Day, all right? So we, uh, this is a day that we honor all of our dads. Hopefully you went by and got a donut in honor of the dads today. Some of you didn't. You may want to go by and get one afterwards. They're not just any, you know, I don't know if you've, you're aware of this, but these are donuts from the donut shop, all right? These are really, really, really good. I can't prove it from scripture, but I'm pretty sure there's going to be a donut shop in heaven one day, all right? Uh, but... Make sure you go by and get one of those, but we just, just a small way to say um, how much we appreciate uh, the dads here, and uh, today is a day that uh, we honor dads. Um, for some of you, that may just be you stopping to remember your dad. Uh, maybe uh, your dad is no longer with you, and today's a day where you stop and remember uh, God's gift that he gave to you through your father. Uh, maybe you're taking dad out for lunch today. Uh, maybe your uh, family will love you as much as my family loves me, as they're going to take me to an anointed good place, a house of waffle worship, all right? Man, we're, give me a waffle and some hash browns, scattered, smothered, covered, and, and I will feel very honored today, all right? Uh, but however you are uh, planning to celebrate uh, Father's Day, happy Father's Day to you. Today that you, you reflect on your own father, you reflect on what it means to be a father, uh, and I want you to know, just because you're not uh, a, you know, biologically or uh, an adoptive father to, to a child, every man, Christian man, has a responsibility, should bear a responsibility to make an impact on people around them. All right, so uh, think about that. You know, there's a number of things that I could list off as to what it means uh, to be a faithful, God-honoring father, father figure, a, a really a godly man. Uh, but to be a man of God, the man of God that you're called to be, really could be reduced down to one statement, one thing, that if it would dominate your life, so much about your life would fall into place as to what it means to be a faithful, godly man. And it's this. It's being a man who genuinely and passionately loves Jesus Christ with your heart. That you have a genuine love in your heart for Christ that turns into a genuine Christ-like love for the people around you. And that's not just true for men. That's true for any disciple of Christ here. The most important thing that could ever be said about you is that you are a person, a disciple, who truly loved Jesus with your heart who truly loved Jesus, who truly loved your King, your Lord, and who loved other people with a Christ-like love. See, it's when our love for Christ, when that wanes, when that fire cools down, uh, that's when things get off the tracks. That's when problems happen in our life. That's when problems happen in our church. That's when you tragically, it, tragically what begins to happen is the light that you're called to shine in the darkness of your, of your own life, wherever you're at this week, and the, and the light that we're called to shine as a church in the context that God's placed us in, when, when the love of Christ is not in our hearts, what happens is that light begins to dim. And this is an issue that we see Jesus addressing this morning in his word. I'm just going to circle back around to dads at the end. But again, this is a word for the entire church, whoever you are here today, for you to lean in and to listen to with a humble heart. Two weeks ago, we began a study uh, of the seven, uh, seven real churches that existed in the first century that in the first three chapters of Revelation, we see Jesus writing a letter uh, to each of these churches, seven letters. And John, uh, in the first uh, part of this series, in chapter 1, uh, we, uh, we looked at John's, who's the, John the Revelator. Right? John's been given a revelation of Christ, and now it's been given to us through God's Word. We see the vision that John got of Jesus Christ. 
And it's a comforting, it's an encouraging vision in many, many ways. We see Jesus in the midst of his church. We see Jesus caring for his church. He's present with his church. He's protecting his church. And what we'll see in the next seven weeks is he's also uh, Jesus who's present with us, who's instructing his church. All right, so in these letters, what we're going to learn, we're going to hear instruction from Christ. We're going to learn what Jesus uh, desires. We're going to learn what Jesus detests. And in this first letter to the church in Ephesus, a real church that existed, what we're going to see here, we're going to learn ultimately what Jesus is after in the life of you as an individual disciple and in the life of a, of a body of believers. You know what it is? You know what he's after? He's after your heart. He's ultimately after your heart. He only knows how to love one way, and it's 100%. Amen. And he's going to pursue you until he has all of you. He wants all of your heart. Uh, stand with your Bibles open. With your Bibles uh, open, uh, chapter 2, I'll begin to read in verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. So John's being instructed to write these words. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and, are not, and found them to be false. I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent, and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I'm thankful this morning that you've, through the gospel, you're sending your son to die on the cross for us, to conquer the grave we couldn't conquer, to bear our sins on himself, that through that you've saved us. Lord, you've risen us up from our graves. You've given us new life. You've given us a new heart. You've given us new appetites, new affections for you. You've given us a new mind. And you've given us spiritual ears. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to hear from your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you, you would unclog those spiritual ears, that you'd free this room of distraction, that you'd protect this room from this man's opinion, that we'd only hear from your word. And that we'd hear it in such a way that your Holy Spirit would take it and plant it in our hearts such a way that it will change us to be more conformed to the image of your son. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 1, you'll see there that we find a lot of the same characteristics that we saw in John's vision in chapter 1. And, and again, it's a very comforting image, right? This is, uh, we have his protection. That's the image that we see. We're, we're good in his hands. Seven stars in his right hand. We talked about last time, we were, uh, two weeks ago, we were in chapter one, how each of those stars are symbolic. Apocalyptic literature, a lot of symbolic language. Those seven stars are, are symbolic, I believe, of uh, seven representative angels, one assigned to each of these churches. But it's really the big picture. Don't miss the big picture. It's meant to show you, hey, we're in good hands. The Lord of the cosmos has you, your life, in his hands as a believer and has his church in his hands. It says he's, we see Jesus here again. He, he's walking among the seven lampstands. This is Jesus in the midst of his church, present in his church, paying attention to his church. Nothing escapes his eyes. And he's, he's watching his church 
One, to encourage us and to bless us at times, but also at times to discipline us, to rebuke us, to call us back to himself when we lose our way. And he's been watching the church in Ephesus. He's been paying attention to the church at Ephesus. We just read his report, his evaluation. His evaluation is the only one that really, really matters. And we just read what he saw. But I've wondered this week as I think about Jesus, the one among the lampstands, those seven lampstands, who is the one among every lampstand that ever sprouts up, any, any church that any, had ever exists in the history of the church, including Schindler Drive Baptist Church, I wonder what the Lord who walks in the midst of this lampstand, as he watches our church, what his report would look like about us. What would his evaluation look like about Schindler Drive? Something to think about as we study this letter and really as we move through uh, the rest of these churches over the next several weeks. Now, with this letter, we're going to break this letter up into three parts. I'll go ahead and give you the three points right now if you're a note taker. Uh, number one, we're going to look at the Lord's evaluation of his church. Uh, number two, we're going to see the Lord's answer for his church. And number three, uh, we're going to look at the Lord's promise to his church. Number one, the Lord's evaluation of his church. Now, this evaluation, uh, we're going to break it up because the text does this into two parts. In this evaluation, we're going to see that he's giving words of commendation, but he's also given words of correction. So, words of commendation. Let's begin there because he points out that they're getting a lot of things right, that they're still doing a lot of the good things that they had started doing in the days when this church sprouted up. And it's a really cool and exciting story as to how this church started. The church in Ephesus, it was planted in the middle of one of the most influential cities on the planet in those days, and also one of the most pagan cities, the city of Ephesus. Politically, it's a very influential a force, a city in the Roman world. Again, it was very pagan. They were particularly famous for their worship of the goddess Diana or Artemis. And they, they built even this huge temple, ornate, beautiful temple that people would travel from all around to come and look at. And a lot of people would come to worship in, to worship this false god. It was so big, it was so ornate, it was so beautiful that it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world in the first century. But in the middle of this city, this pagan city, this politically important city, you, you begin to see this, these evangelism efforts take place uh, in, in, in that city of, you know, of the likes of Priscilla and Aquila, some of those early disciples, and you begin to see the gospel taking root. And then you see Paul shortly after coming in. It's recorded in Acts chapter 19. He comes into the city on one of his missionary journeys, and he begins to preach, and revival breaks out. People begin to get saved. A church is planted there. Like a gospel advancing church. And they see fruitful ministry. And so he's there. They're going after it. They're preaching the gospel. They're making disciples who are making disciples in that area and outside of that region. And after three years of them going after it, the gospel has so much taken a root in the hearts of so many people. It's literally changing the worship culture in Ephesus. People, so many people are turning their back on the false god of Artemis and turning to Jesus that it literally shakes up the economy. So, so many of those people, that was a huge temple, so much of the economy was wrapped up in that temple. Like, the people made their living based on what happened in that temple. Like, for example, there were these guys who made the little statues and figurines of Artemis, and they sold it. That's how they made a living. That's how they fed their kids. That's how they got their income. And that's, you know, so the gospel began to affect all these people's profit margins. And that was creating a problem. And so, uh, you see, just to fast forward through all of this craziness, this big riot breaks out. 
And they're trying to shut down the advancement of the gospel. And, and Paul ends up, after that riot, moving on to Macedonia. But he leaves behind this healthy church that doesn't stop the mission. They just keep shaking things up in that culture, in Ephesus, for the sake of the gospel. And they experienced some great years of ministry. For a period of time, Timothy pastored this church. For a period of time, John pastored this church. And, and now three decades have passed from when the church first began. And this is where Jesus is now looking into the church. And what does he see? Well, one, he sees that so much that they got right in those early day, days are still in, is still intact. And he commends them for it. First, he says this in verse 2. He says, I know your works. I know your toil. In other words, I still see you're not a lazy church. You guys, there's like a, a grittiness about you. You guys are going after. You're hard workers. And Jesus says, I see that, and I'm pleased by that. That's good. Number, number two, you see, uh, you know, second, that he takes notice of what, what, do, what do we see there? Their patient endurance. We see that commended in verses two and verses three. It was not easy to be a Christian in that first century Roman Empire world. Like if you didn't bow your knee to Caesar, to him solely as your Lord... Right? Your life was going to be miserable. If you didn't bow your knee to the false gods that were kind of tied to these job unions and to your workplace, your life was going to be miserable. And you were going to feel, a, a, if you're going to walk the path of following Jesus, you were going to feel a real pressure to cave and to compromise and to kind of get with the program. And even at times, maybe bow your knee just outwardly and inwardly, even if you don't really mean it, just so you don't get killed or don't lose your job. There was a lot of pressure to do that, but this was a church that didn't cave to that pressure. This was a church that patiently endured. They kept professing Jesus as the Lord no matter what. They never backed down. They kept pressing forward. And Jesus is letting them know, I still see, I see that. I see that that's still good. And, and I'm pleased by that. That's good. Third, he commends their commitment to truth, to sound doctrine. Look at verse 2. He says, I've also noticed how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. These are, these are very important words that Christ had for them. Are these not really important words for us to pay attention to today? Amen. Notice Jesus, the Lord of the cosmos, the Lord of His church, the head of His church, is commending their intolerance. Those are some fighting words today. That'll ruffle some feathers. They didn't tolerate any teaching that didn't line up with the Word of God. They, they were passionately making sure like any heretical wolf that came in and tried to gobble up the sheep of the church with false doctrine, they were running out. They maintained a love for truth. They stood for truth. They sang about what was true. They understood their need for truth. So many, even in the church, have departed from, the, from our necessity for truth. We need it. Amen. You say, well, why do we need truth? Because our conscience is prone to wander? Amen. You think we need, hey, you think we need truth? Hey, just look at our culture. Just look at your own conscience. Our conscience wanders. It has to stay regulated. Like our conscience wanders, so we need like a true north to keep us on track, to keep us on a path that's God honoring, to keep getting back on. And that true north has never changed. It's the word of God. Amen. It's the truth of God's word. And the church of Ephesus got that. They believed that. They were defenders of truth. They loved God's word. Doctrine was a big deal to them. Sound teaching was a big deal, deal, big deal to them. They protected who got in their pulpit. They were just weren't going to let anybody get up in there. They wanted to make sure people were doctrinally sound, theologically correct. It mattered to them. In verse 6, Jesus commends their hate for groups like the Nicolaitans. Do you all know who the Nicolaitans are? I don't really either. Nobody really knows who the Nicolaitans are. But we kind of can use some context clues and 
and, uh, and draw some conclusions. We, 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 we believe that this was kind of like a, a group of, of false teachers who came in and were kind of mixing uh, worldliness with Christianity. You know, kind of presenting like a very liberal uh, Christian, so-called Christian faith that you could hold to and kind of keep your foot somewhat in the world and also kind of in the Christian faith. And it would make your life easier, right? You could kind of get with the program and not stand out and experience persecution. And they were saying, that's okay, you can still be a Christian and do that. And Jesus is basically saying, yeah, I hate that. And I see that you hate that too. And I like the fact that you hate that. He's commending them for that. So what is Jesus seeing when he looks into this church? He sees their love for truth. He sees their hard work. He sees their perseverance. And he commends them for, for all of this. And at this point, you're like, if I was in Ephesus, that sounds like a pretty good church to attend. That sounds like a pretty good church to become a member of. And yet there's something very wrong. And this is where Jesus' words move from words of commendation to words of correction. In verse 4, he takes a hard right here and he says, but I have this against you now there's some people you don't want to hear those words from this is not just coming from anybody again let's get into our minds the vision that john gives us that he saw of christ the authoritative vision of jesus christ in the midst of his church is it says his his eyes were like flames of fire his seven stars in his right hand his feet are like burnished bronze his voice is like that of a of a million niagara falls this is the authoritative jesus who bled and died for the church who bought his people with his precious blood and he looks at them he looks at us and he says this hey it's not that i just need to chat like talk about something he says i'm walking among you looking into your hearts and i have this against you they had to be thinking, what in the world? Like, what, what have we done? Feels like we're doing a lot of things right. What have we done so, so horribly? And he says this, you have abandoned the love you had at first. That's what's wrong. You've abandoned the love you've had at first. In other words, you don't love me and you don't love people around you like you once did. The sincere love for God and a sincere love for others that, that spilled out over your love for God that once drove you to do ministry and to serve people, I don't see it there anymore. And he's saying that is a problem. You, you know, you kind of get a sense that along the way that this, this church, and we can see how this can easily happen, has kind of drifted into a position where they love truth. They love to call themselves defenders of truth. They love knowing truth. They love knowing good theology. They love the word of truth. And yet they seem to love that more than they actually love the author of truth. More than their heart sincerely loves God himself. You get the sense that this is the kind of church that's gotten to the place where they love being right. They love winning an argument more than they love the thought of actually winning that person that they are having a conversation with to Jesus. Why? Because they've lost their love for people. A love for people that drives you, listen, to yes, deliver truth. To never compromise on truth, but to remember that this is a soul that's going to spend eternity somewhere forever. And so it's imperative that as I deliver truth, pure truth, that I'm delivering it in love. That I'm delivering it wrapped up in the fruits of the Spirit with love and humility, with patience, with gentleness. You know, you get the sense that somewhere along the way, that that ministry work that they're doing in their local church that was once a joy, that they once did for Jesus, that once was all about serving Him with a humble heart, has become less about Jesus and His glory and His fame and more about me. The the motivations in their heart to serve, they're, they're off. Do you see that? 
Have you ever been there? Your motivations to serve, your motivations to do what right, do what's right, become selfish, become faulty. Maybe it's that they were serving to be recognized. There was a time when they were serving and it was all about Jesus. I don't need to be seen. Hide me behind the cross. But yet they've slid into this place of where they feel like they deserve some of the credit. I want to be noticed. I want to feel important. It's a selfish motive. Maybe it's that they, they, they're serving where they once served out of delight. Now it's a duty or an obligation. And we can easily slip into that. Like, why are you here this morning? Well, I'm kind of here because I was raised to come to church. I, I'm here because this is kind of something that I'm supposed to do. Uh, if that's your motive to be here, to, to worship and to gather, it's a faulty motive. Maybe it's that they were studying all the right doctrine, but they were studying it to make sure they were sharp on theology and had an answer to everything, but it was really to show people how smart they were. That's a selfish motive. We, like we could go down a long list of faulty and selfish motives that could have been in their heart, whatever they were. Listen carefully to this. When that happens, here's the tragedy. When that happens, as a believer, when you have the wrong, faulty, selfish motives in your heart that are driving you to do ministry, to do all the right, right things for all the wrong reasons, you're robbing yourself of the supernatural, soul-quenching delight that it is to serve Jesus just for His glory, for His fame. To serve Jesus and others because you love Him. And because you, you just can't get over as how much He loves you and has served you. As one commentator put it, without that kind of love in your heart, man, fueling your labor, it, it, your labor is going to become drudgery. Our persevering will be joyless. Our theology is going to produce arrogance. Man, but when a sincere love for God begins to rule in your heart, it changes all of that. Our theology begins to produce Meekness, humility, compassion. When we're fueled by our love for God and for other people, it's a joy to live for Jesus. It's a joy to work hard to serve other people. Like love change, love is a game changer. Like a love relationship makes you do things differently. Remember in the Old Testament when Jacob worked for seven long years, hard long years for his uh, for Rachel, the, the girl that he wanted to spend the rest of his life with, wanted to take her hand in marriage, and he had to work seven long years, hard years, for her father in order to win her hand in marriage. And you remember what he said at the end of those seven years? He said those seven years felt like a few days. What made it feel like a few days? I'll tell you what made it feel like a few days. The love he had in his heart for Rachel. Love is a game changer. Man, lo love will compel you to do things. Men, Father's Day, let me talk to you for a second. Love will compel you to do things these days as, as a married man that, that you would have never done as a single guy. I remember me and Rebecca celebrated our uh, 17th wedding anniversary. I'm glad I got that quick. 17th wedding anniversary <laughs> yesterday. So her birthday and, and our anniversary falls on the same day, right? Which is good because it's easy to remember really bad if I forget that day. There's two, yeah, two things I forget. But I remember when we were dating, one day I found myself in a place... I never would have gone voluntarily or just in my free time before we were dating. We were down at the Cummer Museum of Arts and Gardens, you know. I never once with my college buddies said, hey, let's go down to the Cummer Museum or let's go look at some paintings and look at some flowers. But yet there I was, walking the hallways. Oh, yeah, Monet. Mm -hmm, yeah, pretty picture. Those are wonderful flowers. Why was I there? Why was I talking that way? Because of love. I was there because of her. 
You could have never caught, I would have never been caught dead. Just, there's no desire to sit down on my couch in my dorm room in college and watch me a Hallmark movie just to kill some time on an afternoon. And yet these days, there I am. Sitting on the couch. Our DVR is full of them, right? Why would I do that? Why do I go through that at times? Because of love. Because of a love relationship that I have with my wife. Now, ladies, don't weaponize that against your husband later today, all right? You heard the preacher. He said, if you love me, let's sit down. We're watching a Hallmark. We're watching a Lifetime movie, right? It's Father's Day. Let him watch some golf. Leave him alone today, okay? My point is this. Love is a game changer. Listen, when you're in love, when you, when you experience a love relationship with Christ and He captures your heart, when your heart is full of love for Him and others, listen... It changes your life. Being generous with your time and talent and treasure isn't hard. It's easy. It becomes easy. Like when you're in a love relationship with Jesus and and you love Him because you realize how much the the Lord of Heaven stepped out of Heaven and and came down to the love that He demonstrated for you on the cross and all that He did for you. You can't love people too much. You can't serve people too much. You can't encourage people too much. Love is a game changer. This is why we must maintain a love for Jesus and others in our heart. If not, look at, look at this church. This is where you end up. A group of, of arrogant, self-absorbed, grumpy, cold, busybodies simply going through all the right motions for all the wrong reasons. Just coasting along. Just kind of coexisting in their relationship with Jesus. That's not fun. You don't want a marriage like that, do you? And yet often people experience that. Kind of coexist, go through the motions with their heart not engaged in the relationship. I heard about the guy who asked his friend, he said, hey man, you've been married for 45 years. Can you tell me the key to a happy marriage? And the guy's like, yeah, come over here, I'll tell you. He goes, I can't speak for every couple. He goes, but here's what me and my wife do. He said, uh, me and my wife, he goes, uh, one night a week, he said, we go out on the town, take a really long walk. We have a really nice, expensive dinner, and then we take a, a really long walk home. He says, she does it on Thursday, and I do it on Friday. <laughs> now, I would say that there may be a level of happiness there, right? But you would agree, hey, they've lost their first love. They're coasting. They're going through the motions. Hey, that's a tragic thing to experience in a marriage. And you need to work on, you need to work on capturing the love that was first there in that relationship. But it is a sad and tragic, sinful thing when it happens in the life of a believer. It can be detrimental to your life. So what do we do? What do you do when your heart grows cold? What do you do when you feel a disconnection? What do you do when you feel like you're just coasting and coexisting in your relationship with God and He doesn't have your heart? Your heart is not where it should be. Well, The rest of our time remaining, let's look at the last two points. Number one is this. We see the Lord's answer for His church. There's a problem here, right? So what's the Lord's answer for His church? It was found in three exhortations, three words that each begin with the letter R. We find them in verse 5 and 6. In the first we see at the beginning of verse 5, He says, Remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. He's instructing them to stop and to remember, to look back to a time at the height of uh, the heights of your relationship with Jesus Christ, to remember a time when you were passionate, to remember a time when your heart was on fire for Jesus. You know what? This would have immediately taken this church in Ephesus, and this was read out loud. It would have taken probably an hour and a half to read through all of Revelation. 
And a messenger, after John finished this, went, and, and you can look on the coast where all of these cities, these real cities where these churches were at, uh, you can see the, 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 the path, the journey that he went on. And his first stop along that semicircle, top of the Mediterranean, was uh, Ephesus. And he comes into town, and he begins to read this part. And I can only imagine as he begins to say, hey, remember. Remember the heights that all of their minds probably collectively go back to Acts 19 in those early days. He's saying, do you not remember? Hey, remember when revival broke out. Remember when Paul came in and preached the gospel and you saw your sin and you tasted his grace and you trusted in him as your Lord and Savior and, and you begin to fall in love with him so much and this is what love for God will do. You begin to deal with your personal sin and they're bringing all of their witchcraft and their idolatry books and, and things and they're throwing all of these expensive things into a fire out in public. They didn't care. They loved Jesus. They cared about his opinion more than anybody else's. He's saying, do you remember that? Do you remember when revival broke out? Do you remember when people were being healed? Do you remember how you were loving one another? Do you remember how then your, your, your community of faith wasn't just marked by what you believed in and what you were for and what you believed in what was true, but it was marked by compassion and forgiveness and mercy and love? Do you remember how Jesus was using your church as a light piercing through the darkness of that dark culture of Ephesus as people watched the way that you loved God and loved other people? Jesus says, remember. It's a Psalm 103 thing. It's the practice of remembering and continuing to remember in order to help stir up a passion that was once there. And his instruction for their cold hearts, his answer for their cold hearts is the same answer for yours. He's saying remember. Are you a believer who's grown cold this morning? If you are, think back to a time in your life when the cross meant everything to you. Think back to a time in your life when, you, when your life unmistakably collided with the power of God in such a way that your heart was full with a radical love for Jesus. Think about and remember a day. Go back to a place when you came into a place like this and you sang with all of your heart because of a way that God moved in your life. And you just had to get to a place with your brothers and sisters in Christ and worship Him. Maybe He healed you of something. Maybe it was after He saved you. Think back to a time when you walked through His Word, not as a chore, but as a treat. Where you were in His Word and walking through His Word. Because you just wanted to know Him more. To where you, 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 the alarm went off and you, you were disappointed. You had to get away from the Word and head to work because it was a place that you spent to get to know His heart. Because you loved Him. It wasn't academic. It wasn't checking some off, off a list. Remember back when it was, a, it was a joy to serve people. It was a joy to give your time and your talent and your treasure to pour into other people. It, and it wasn't about doing ministry. It was about people. It's because of the love that you had in your heart for God and people. When it wasn't about what I did, but it was about who I loved. And that informed and fueled everything about who I was. He's saying, remember that. And get back to that. That's the idea of remembering. But here's the reason why so many stay in the cold heart cycle. Because it's like, how do I get back? Like, how, like I see up on that mountaintop where I once was. 
But it's like, how do I get back? And we, we have this idea in our head that it's going to take a, 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 a period of time of like work. And it's the same way that I look back and I see when I was in shape at that point in my life. And I, I don't know how to get back there. And it's going to take work. And I don't feel, don't feel like I can get there soon enough. And we can begin to view spiritually where we were in that same way. It's, I, I don't know how to get there. I need, I need the right plan. I need to know what kind of work I need to do. And yet we forget that the rekindling of the fire in your heart for Jesus can be rekindled once again in a moment. In a moment. If you'll see the next word there, remember, but it's not just remember. It's rekindled in a moment through repentance. Very next word there in verse 5, repent, it means to turn, to change one's mind. It's the idea of changing and turning now. Do you understand that? That repentance is a turning away from sin. I got that. But do you understand repentance is something that is, is presented as something you do. It's urgent. You do it now. If there's coldness there, if there's lifelessness there, if the Holy Spirit through this message is pointing this out in your life, what he's saying is, is remember where you were at and repent that you're not there anymore. Repent that you, of the sin of, of your heart growing cold. And it's not just, okay, I'm sorry, God. Sorry. Yep, got me. Things have gotten a little cold. Things have gotten a little distant. This is a deep sorrow that you've drifted away from your first love. In a way that's displeased the one who made you and who's redeemed you. It takes you to a place of brokenness that spills out into the practice of confession to where it's not just a little simple, I'm sorry, it's God, I'm sorry. God, I've drifted away. I'm the one who moved. You're not the one who moved. I'm so far away from where I need to be. My heart has grown so cold. Oh my Lord, my Savior. Forgive me for wandering. I'm turning away from this coldness. I do not want to be this way. This is not where I belong. Take me back to where I belong. And it's with that contrite heart this morning that in a moment you will turn and you will experience the loving arms of a heavenly Father who will wrap you up and will swallow you up with the grace and the love that He swallowed you up with at the first. And in an indication that you've sincerely remembered and repented is that actions will follow and the action is, is the word return. He says there, you, you'll begin to do the works that you did at first. You'll do the things that you used to do when your love for God was passionate, it was radical and it spilled out into a love for other people. So what is he saying here? You remember the heights, you turn back to Christ and you get back to those heights of passionate, radical love in your hearts for Jesus and other people. Because if you don't, Jesus does not mince his words right here. And he's speaking to a church. And he's speaking to us. He says, if you don't, if you don't passionately stay in, in that pattern and in those motions of remembering and repenting and returning, I'll take away your lampstand. He doesn't say, I'm going to take away your 5013C, right? You can have your 5013C and be a nonprofit and call yourself a ministry. But if you don't have a lampstand, you ain't a church. And it's a warning that fruitful ministry can happen in a church. And very quickly, the glow of that, the testimony of that ministry can die out because they've lost their heart for God and for others. And we're just going through the right motions with the wrong motivation. And Jesus took away their... You look back on the pages of church history 
And there's a long line falling by the wayside of churches who did just that. But here's the good news. On the flip side, a church full of redeemed people who keep remembering, keep repenting, keep returning to their first love. You know what Jesus says about that kind of church? The gates of hell will not prevail against you. And here's a word, and he ends with this, verse 7. He says, a church full of this kind of authentic believers, verse 7, to that one that conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Number three this morning, we see the Lord's promise to his church. This is awesome right here. I think this is placed here ultimately to help stir up more love for Christ, which is what Jesus is after, love in our hearts. That word conquer right there, we covered that two weeks ago. It's nikaio, it's the word conquer, it's the word overcomer. Here's the promise, to the one, overcomes what? The one who overcomes this loveless going through motions, just coasting and coexisting with Christ. The one who overcomes that. The the body of believers who overcomes that and comes back again and again to a white hot love and passion for Jesus who remembers and repents and returns, which is a sign of a true disciple in a body of true disciples. This is what you get to look forward to, that one day you will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Now, the tree of life, we see that in the book of Genesis, right? That it's a tree we can't eat from because of our sin. But then you see it appear again in the future, in Revelation, which what which Revelation gives us is, is future reality. One day, we see that tree of life again, and, and around that tree, eating from that tree, in Revelation, what do you see? Disciples from all nations eating from that tree, experiencing eternal life in the presence of Jesus, which means this. This is meant to encourage you. This is meant to fill your heart up with more love for Jesus Christ this morning. It means if you're in Christ, if you are His, if you are in His grasp, if you are faithful, those who love him those who by his grace persevere to the end one day you will enjoy that paradise that he's prepared for us and that promise should put more love into your heart for him this morning it's really quite simple we complicate it you know it'll fire your heart up for jesus this morning turn your eyes to him remember what he's done for you paradise and what he's going to do Like, how can your heart not well up with gratitude and worship and adoration and love more for this Savior who made a way for us to experience not just a break from the penalty and the power of sin, but one day will invite us into paradise and finish the work that He started in us. Believer, no one has done for you more than Jesus. No one has done more for you than what Jesus has done for you. And I think the point here is meant to leave us with a question. How can we not love him? How can we not love him more? So the message of this letter for our church today is may we be a church. Not just going through the motions. May we be a church not just full of right doctrine, which that's important. That we have an informed mind. But to make sure it's doing what it's meant to do. That it's creating an inflamed heart. A heart that loves Jesus, that has a radical love for Jesus and other people that results in exalting, Christ-exalting service. It's a word for everybody. It's a word for dads today. It's a word for men here today. Greatest thing that could ever be said about you, men, the world will tell you a lot of things that equals manhood and what it means to be manly, what it means to have a life of purpose. I'd pay attention to what the eternal Son of God has to say to us. You know what he says? 
is the best thing that could ever be said about you. The best thing for your family, the best thing for your spouse, the best thing for your kids, the best thing for your life as a disciple, the best thing for people around you at your workplace, the best thing that could be said about you, that man's got a heart for Jesus. He loves Jesus, and he loves other people. That's not just the greatest thing that could be said about men. The greatest thing that could be said about any of us is they have a heart for Christ. They have a radical, passionate love for Jesus. Let's bow our head and close our eyes this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, I want to invite you to come to Christ this morning. Don't just come to church and not come to Christ. What what I mean by that is it it entails you coming, if this hasn't happened in your life before, coming to a place where you see your sin and you admit your sin and you understand that you're a sinner and that you're separated from God, that He's holy and we're sinful, that we're deserving of separation from Him. And yet, God didn't leave us in our sin. He sent His Son to live a perfect life we can't live, to die on the cross and take the judgment for sin that we deserve to take and then he rose from the dead what that means is he lived the life you can't live died the death you deserve to die and then conquered the grave that you can't conquer and if you will believe exclusively that that's the only way for your sins to be forgiven and dealt with if you believe that what he did on the cross counts for you you'll believe that that's the only way for you to have a right relationship with God and you'll throw the full weight of your faith it's not about what you do it's about what Jesus has already done throwing the full weight of your faith on that this morning he will save you He can read the thoughts of your mind. He can see the attitude of your heart. Ask Him to save you, even where you're seated seated right now. If that's where you're at, I'm going to be standing down front. I want to invite you, as we stand and sing, to come down. I'd love to pray with you if that's the step of faith you're taking today. For the rest of us, has your heart grown cold? Do you think it's an accident that you were here this morning? You think it was an accident that we're in this text this morning? I know for this guy right here, it was an accident that I was studying this text this week. In this text, it's laid out what you need to do. You need to remember. You need to repent. And you need to return. You need to fix your eyes on Jesus. You you need your heart to be reminded that no one has loved you like Jesus has loved you. And you need to spend some time with Him this morning so that your heart can fill up once again with a love for Him that is so radical, that is so passionate, that is so sincere and genuine that it will begin to spill out touch every other place of your life. So you spend some time with Him this morning. You allow Him to work in your heart.